To ship, of course. Welcome to another episode of The Ship Show, the podcast where we discuss build, engineering, DevOps, release management, and everything in between. I'm your host, Paul Reed, SoberBuildEng on Twitter and at SoberBuildEngineer.com. And with me tonight from the crew is... So this is EJ Saramella, E. Saramella on Twitter. And this is Yusuf, that's Scientist on Twitter. It's January's like already over. How was your January? It's kind of scary. Frigid. Good. <laughs> Polar Vortex. <laughs> Polar Vortex, yeah. yeah. Next week, everyone from all of Rapid7 is coming to Boston. And meanwhile, they're traveling in from places like Austin, Texas, and L.A. And they're in for a surprise. Yeah, or it's not totally totally frigid. Although uh, Seth was tweeting that Austin was pretty cold. So Yeah, it's they got cold. like a dusting of snow and they shut down the entire state. So Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, for episode 35, uh, we're going to be discussing application updates of various types and how that process has changed over the past few years, how it affects users, and especially how it relates to the introduction of continuous delivery in your environment. We're also going to perhaps look at some case studies and some myths, but first up, news and views as we always do. A couple uh, big items this week. Gmail was down for a couple hours this week, and they did a write-up. We'll link to that in the show notes, of course, but a bunch of services went down uh, and a bunch of people were affected. Um, I even saw an Onion article making fun of this because they were like saying maybe Google just did it for fun or something like this. But the one thing I'd point out about the write-up that I thought was particularly interesting Yusuf, you and I were talking about this before the show was the whole bit about, it looks like it was due to, uh, they were vague about this, but they pushed out some config change which implies to me like they, uh, you know, infrastructure is code they pushed out some chef recipe or puppet uh, manifest or, or whatever and uh, things went poorly. But the interesting part was that uh, their monitoring kicked in and like reverted the change or something. It's kind of short on those details but that's what it seems to imply. So that something programmatically noticed that there was a glitch and, and it knew yes, what to yeah. roll back? Yeah, wow. that's, yeah. Uh, and that's one of those things it's like, there's a lot of logic there but... Uh, yeah, that's that, Skynet going on over there or something. Yeah, it was interesting. There was also a report, and I'll see if I can dig this up, that apparently if you were logged into Gmail and you searched for Gmail, which apparently a lot of people do because they think Google is the address bar, the link that it was giving you was pre-filled in with some Yahoo user's email address, and I think Gawker or somebody confirmed with this user that he was getting like hundreds of emails an hour, mostly blank, because they would click this link and then it would pre-populate a Gmail compose window with his address, and apparently this was related to this outage, which you talk about complex system theory, it's like, I don't even know how some random Yahoo user's email address gets associated with like a chef recipe push and then revert or whatever. But copy paste. I yeah, I don't know. Uh, that would be really funny actually if the bug was related to that some site reliability engineer's friend or something, and he accidentally cut and paste something into a recipe and it kind of got through. Like or okay. maybe even funnier, maybe somebody behind the scenes there was like, "Hey man, check this out. Look at the power that I have." <laughs> yeah. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> to screw over Yahoo's uh, Yahoo user, who <laughs> knows? Next up, uh, Docker announced this last week that they raised 15 million. Yusuf, you pointed this out. I mean, I, I read it, but I uh, thought it was I guess interesting. Do did the uh, article talk about other than growing and whatever what they were going to do, particularly with the millions of dollars? Well, I mean, I suspect that uh, they're going to be you know looking at uh, becoming a potential contender to VMware and other container slash virtualization solutions. But yeah, it sounds like it's a good. Uh, I think it's a good thing for the tech uh, user community in general. 
So yeah, it'll be interesting to see what you know. I was just reading the quote there said they operated quote unquote very conservatively for most of 2013. So it'll be interesting to see where they invest. Um, so so vodka luges. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, it's interesting, right? Because in the 2014 uh, episode we did, I mean, we talked a lot about uh, containerization and containers being a big deal this year. So I guess this is just another example of that. But it uh, looks like they're going to maybe get into hosted services and enterprise deployment of Docker. Interesting. And some partner development, according to the CEO in this article. We'll link to it. And certainly be interesting to hear what users think of this. Have either one of you guys used it? I haven't. Heard a lot of buzz about it, and I just haven't had a use case for it yet. But I'm sure, I mean, especially if they're going to be developing it with the funding they have, I'm sure I will come into a use case where it would be the perfect solution. No, I haven't had a chance to use it. I've heard a lot of um, interesting things uh, about it, though. A lot of people are a lot of people in the chef community are doing some some interesting things with it. Yeah, yeah. Next up, we have an article. It's a, a couple weeks old, but we thought it was interesting. Uh, we'll link to it in the show notes, of course, about uh, unencrypted Windows crash reports being a blueprint for attackers. This is part of the big kind of telemetry thing that you see a lot of applications implementing, and apparently nobody thought that encrypting that data would be worthwhile. And of course, when you have crash reports, that gives you detailed information on how to to craft exploits in this article was actually talking about um, nation-state hackers was the phrase they used uh, with my air quotes that nobody can see talking about how they could use this uh, and then you know what they were able to glean from a crash report so one of the other interesting things is apparently they track and report what models of mobile phones you've plugged into your PC we'll link to the article and of course the uh, detailed overview of the data that's containing crash reports did you guys see this this is kind of a weird like way to hack things, but I mean, with a lot of monitoring and stuff with the apps we do, it's it's apparently something else we have to pay attention to. Yeah, I heard about this. I think it's kind of a, a clever, albeit uh, kind of nefarious way to, to, to go about doing this stuff. I don't know, maybe, maybe we shouldn't be plugging in our phones to our uh, computers anymore, but yeah. Yeah, well, one of the hard things, too, I, I remember when Mozilla uh, was working on their crash report, it was, it was actually jointly developed with Google for a while. You can't make a lot of assumptions about the state of, I mean, those programs tend to be very simple by design because you've crashed. So you can't like rely on your cryptography library not having being valid in memory because it could have scribbled all over that or whatever. So it's kind of interesting like how would you solve this problem and obviously you would encrypt them but that'll obviously be some client side work to do there. Before we like jet on from this the whole like phone angle on this that the comment you guys made. I don't know if you've noticed or seen this in airports where uh, there's just a whole bunch of USB plugs sitting around. And oh, yeah, that hack. Pe- people will just blindly plug their phones in, and it, depending on where you're plugging in or who you're plugging into, like you can still pull data from the phone. And so people have created these like USB condoms. I don't know if you've seen this. Yeah. Where it's effectively just giving the power. I, I don't think... I don't think you should just trivially plug your phone into stuff or leave it connected when you don't have to, you know? Like, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, to think about. I mean, uh, I know that my iPhone offers, and I bet Android does the same, offers to send crash reports it, when it when the phone crashes, and there are actually crash dumps on the phone. It would be interesting to see if that's the next big sort of data that is useful to steal as crash reports from phones. Yeah, and AJ, your comment kind of reminds me about uh, I was traveling abroad about five or six years ago and going through... 
Paris, France, and the De Gaulle Airport. And I think I had my Mac with me, and people were, I guess, coming up to me and saying, "Hey, you know, can we plug my uh, iPhone into your into your Mac?" And I'm like, uh, "I don't no. know." The answer is no. No, you, no, you can't. But I'm, and and I don't think that's a good idea to to do that anyway. But yeah, I don't know. Since since starting work at Rapid Seven, guys, like. I have quite the fleet of tinfoil hats and like don't trust any technology anymore and just I I wouldn't know what what I would say to somebody if they came up to me and asked if they could charge their smartphone off my laptop. <laughs> like what what type of angle or exploit are you trying to attack me with? Like I don't understand this vector. Go away. Uh, yeah, definitely. Last up tonight, we've got uh, a link to an interactive map that shows GitHub is a sprawling city. We thought we'd uh, link to it because it's just kind of something fun for the end of the week. Um, and I guess it shows, we were trying to kind of figure out exactly what it shows. I have a real hard time digesting the data it's trying to show me. I, I think I'm it's really trying, sorry. Yeah, I think it's trying to show, because so the buildings in the map have your GitHub icon at the top of the building. And so I think the taller the building, the more contributions you've made, and then maybe the cities are networks of projects. We were, yeah, we were um, relationships and common activity, I guess, is what the map is based on. So what I, what I found interesting was um, there was mention of, like, downtown Ruby and JavaScript ghetto. <laughs> 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 the Node.js slums, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Sea Island. No, I don't know. C++ Island. <laughs> the Island of Lost Misfits. Coding C++ on GitHub. Yeah. Yep, yep. Next up, updates, continuous delivery, case studies, myths, here on The Ship Show. Welcome back to The Ship Show. So our topic tonight, state of updates in our industry and how that relates to continuous delivery. Seems like uh, automatic silent updates, more and more applications are doing that. Uh, but is that really the way to go and what are some of the, the consequences of doing it that way? We're also going to take a look at a couple of case studies in how application updates were rolled out in a couple of different industries. So some surprising data that we found while we were kind of researching this topic and talk about how it relates to the business side things with continuous delivery. So this topic came up due to something actually I tweeted and then uh, Yusuf and EJ actually both of you chimed in, but it was complaining uh, Roby on Twitter about his Roku updating itself with asking and now he couldn't do Netflix and I made a kind of snarky comment about aren't automatic silent updates just the greatest and then you both chimed in and uh, we thought it would be a good topic to talk about. So Yusuf. Yeah, yeah. so uh, I think uh, last year you know, there was this whole Twitter sort of thread about the Roku. Uh, it's, a, I guess, a, a video streaming device that some people use, and um, more, I guess, on the point of um, consumer-driven sort of hardware software solutions like Roku or Nest or, you know, those types of devices that people are using, uh, whether or not updates should be automatically pushed. And I'm personally kind of at odds for that those types of devices, because on the one side, I kind of want to set it and forget it, but the uh, engineer in me sort of says, no, I'd like to know exactly what's going on with the device. So, Well, the other um, thing, though, about, I mean, the, to, to the point about the original tweet, right? I mean, it, it was set it and forget it, except you expect functionality to continue working, right? right. And the, the, it was, you know, Netflix broke, which is kind of a big use case if you're talking about, you know, a TV receiver type thing. Sure. When we were talking about this, you kind of broke this down into the different kind of context for updates. And it was interesting, right, because you talk about consumer devices like Roku or what's the Google one I'm blanking on? 
the Google's Chromecast. Yeah, Chromecast, yeah. Or Nest with their devices. There's this weird kind of thing between like, well, updating when we're talking about updates, like what are, are you talking about updating the firmware? Are you talking about updating the software that's on the device? Are you talking about updating the the service that the device talks to? It's pretty easy to have that matrix quickly become very huge. Yeah. I mean I'm not a firmware developer, but I, I have to imagine that um, having uh, done a number of like uh, router, thinking like the old Linksys WG whatever um, router firmware updates, that um, a lot of that stuff can get pretty dicey. So I mean, again, maybe any of our listeners out there that uh, have experience with kind of developing uh, firmware type updates over the over the internet, maybe you can speak on that point. But yeah, it seems a little dicey to to do that. But actual updating kind of a user interface slash kind of a higher level software layer, I think might be a little easier. I would think. I don't know. I'd be pretty sketched out about a Nest, especially knowing they do the both the thermostats and now they do the smoke detectors. Behind the scenes upgrading themselves, and uh, I've, I don't want to say anything rumor-ish, but there's been stories of plenty of people setting up their Nest and the Nest malfunctioning and just pinning the heat all day or pinning the, the AC all day, and you come home and you're expecting a 70-degree apartment. Come home, it's 85 instead, but imagine that behind-the-scenes update that you weren't expecting that just happened while you were out or on vacation and Nest decides that your house should be at you know 40 degrees or turn the <laughs> AC on in January in the northeast I, I would I would really like it if those types of things had an update auto update feature that it would at least warn me on my phone or something saying incoming accept deny uh, let me sit there and watch it apply and make sure that it's actually legit and the system is still up and running but it's pretty sketchy yeah so so there's a couple of interesting things and and uh, we'll link to this article uh, in the show notes Steve blank of you know startup owners manual fame he wrote an article about continuous deployment and actually the title of the article is why continuous deployment may mean continuous customer disappointment he took a look at a couple of companies Tesla and Adobe we'll talk about that in a moment but the reason I brought it up is to your point EJ uh, when he was talking about Tesla you were saying if they turns on the heater or whatever like if it does that and you're on vacation like there's real like money to heat your house or cool your house or maybe if certain devices aren't primed like your AC is not, not primed and like turns it on when it's 30 to below outside and causes pipes to burst or, or things yeah, that's what like I say. that. Like, it'd be even more expensive for the heat to go off in the northeast because your pipes break and then you deal with flooding and water damage. Right, and right, right. Expensive. And he talks about the Tesla example where they do updates to like how acceleration and braking work. And so I, I was just thinking about this the other day. We were talking about like funny movies, you know, hacker movies in the 90s. The net comes to mind where all this stuff is internet connected and that hackers are getting in and doing things. But it's like now it's not actually this whole internet of things concept. It's, like, it's not actually that insane anymore. So wait, I don't know enough about the Tesla thing, Paul. So they have like a Wi-Fi connection and the car like firmware updates? Yeah, so the the article goes into <laughs> goes into details about they they do awesome. automatic updates and they update things not only related to the dash but they uh, also modify well to quote the article they may modify major elements of the car from its suspension to its acceleration and handling characteristics. You know, Tesla has been in the media recently because of those car battery fires. So I'm sure that their probably updates have affected the way they do charging and things like that. 
But point being that th these are actually like hardware devices that, that people rely on. It's interesting. It reminds me a lot of the conversation, and this was actually one of the case studies I kind of wanted to bring up and discuss. Uh, EJ, you are saying you, you would have preferred to have like some sort of notification on your phone or update when, when things update. And back when Mozilla was working on, I was there when they were working on, on kind of the first versions of their application updater that they've invested millions of dollars if you count all the engineering time in that it you know, had to be cross-platform, had to update all of their products uh, because they use it for like Thunderbird as well as Firefox. And one of the interesting kind of back and forth conversations that happened during that was this whole bit of actually notifying people about updates because we all have that, you know, Flash is always the example everyone uses. The Flash notifications and people, or maybe Java too, you get the notification, people ignore them. And so the problem was they were looking at the data and they were realizing, well, if we prompt people to update, they're annoyed because they have to restart the browser and they don't, they'll, they'll just click cancel all the time. And then they may be at risk for security vulnerabilities. And so really, I mean, it was, if you look, Google was the one that kind of pioneered this with Chrome, this sort of, we're not going to tell you when we're updating, we're just going to do it, and you have to deal with it. And that sort of idea seems to have become very pervasive. Well, what I like about the Google approach is, so they'll go through and they'll update it, but they won't actually, I mean, as far as I know, or the way that I have Chrome set up, it won't automatically restart your browser. So there'll be a little thing that says, automatically updated your browser, and now you're going to have to go ahead and restart it. So I think that there should be like a distinction made between the update happening behind the scenes and then um, the update actually being persisted or, or taking. Um, well, yeah, but so as I understand it, the way that actually works is it updates the components that need to be updated, and then as you create new tabs, because remember, each tab is actually its own process. Right. So the, it actually, as you replace the tabs or maybe restart your machine, then and then all the tabs come up new, that's how the update actually takes place. And that's actually one of the, the big points that I kind of want to discuss. In the Twitter conversation we were having, and, and this was actually what you and I were talking about, Yusuf, I said silent updates, pretty much everybody's doing it, and it pretty much always screws customers over mostly because it's predicated on false assumptions. And we were talking about what those assumptions were. Yeah. And one of the things there is that there's an assumption that you have architected your application to make updates work in, in some way that isn't constantly annoying the user. You know, if, if Google is constantly shipping binary updates, if they actually let users know when they were doing that, you would get this, I think Mozilla called it update fatigue or something like that, this, this kind of constant notification. So especially in the mobile space, you see this a lot where people are trying to play games with the way they update their mobile apps because they can't get updates are back in the, on most mobile devices back in the control of users, although iOS 7 has actually made an option to turn that off. I, I don't know, on Android, did they do that now too? Like, they can force feed you the updates? So you have the option of, like, auto-grabbing the updates, or they'll notify you, like, XYZ application needs to get updated, we need your approval. Yeah, okay. I guess with iOS 7, they're doing that too, so. And one of the other assumptions, though, that, that uh, it's sort of all predicated on is that you've got some sort of quality metric or regression suite. And, and from a case study point of view, I mean, I think this is where sort of the history of updates and how they've changed is really interesting if you actually compare contrast Mozilla and Chrome. Because if you look, 
one of the big problems when Mozilla went to their sort of rapid release, the train goes every six weeks sort of thing, was that before that time, getting updates out was very difficult because they didn't have the regression suite. You know, the web is a big place. And so they would ship bits that were like broken and then they have to go back and immediately do within days another release, which of course contributes again to update fatigue because they broke something critical that one of the famous examples, I actually shipped this release, was they broke MajorLeagueBaseball.com during the World Series. They shipped out an update that like broke that site. So they ended up shipping another one uh, within days. And so that was one of the things from an organizational perspective they actually really had to invest a lot in was getting a test suite that covered all those bases and you know starting to, when they fix bugs, actually have a test for it so that unit tests would catch that. And that's why now, I mean, the page sets that they go through and the unit tests are huge. Uh, and there's lots of kind of blog posts about the cost of each check-in and how, how much computation they actually do to make sure those bits are good. But a lot of places haven't invested that, but they want to do the continuous delivery, and that's the, the trade-off or the downside. It's like unless you have that infrastructure and that mentality there, that's where shoving updates to your users without any sort of sense of quality, and then assuming that your telemetry and metrics will be able to allow you to shift that and react to that is where it becomes a very precarious argument. So on, on, the, on the Mozilla thing, I was kind of curious, though, was that like a core browser issue or was it more of like a plugin type thing? You know what, I, I, I honestly don't remember. This was years ago now. But I, I believe it was basically the way that Major League Baseball was rendering something that people were using to watch the games or something like that. It, it basically made the element not... And it was it was actually... And, and this is where it gets really hairy. The, that bug was in response to actually a security problem. So it was one of these things where two or three releases had to be done to really address a security, an important security issue, but then it broke other things. So it's one of those things where, you know, a lot of times when we look at, like, continuous delivery, delivery or how updates are handled, it's it's people want the ability to do that, but a lot of times there's not a good sense of what the costs are or where the investment needs to actually occur. You know, another compare contrast between Mozilla and Chrome was Mozilla alienated a lot of their user community when they moved to rapid releases because of their application architecture in that they changed the version number, some say to catch up on Chrome, and the version number in their system architecture was used to mark extensions compatible or not compatible. So I'm sure you probably both remember kind of the uproar, the buzz around my browser breaks every six weeks because the extensions that I care about, like NoScript or whatever, would basically stop working every six weeks or there'd be a, a window there where the application got updated but then the, the extensions were incompatible uh, and so they were disabled. Chrome never had this problem because the way they do extensions is totally different and so they, they didn't have that problem to deal with. But it's an interesting sort of compare contrast and sort of Firefox was a much older application and there was an installation base where it's who knows how many users they basically shed because people just got tired of dealing with that. So it's another kind of question when you're talking about updates or continuous delivery that if you're not building your app today from scratch, you need to ask yourself what parts of your application are 
not really compatible with continuous delivery that you need to address in some form. Yeah, testing I think is a big is a big component of that. But um, I think you know, depending on how extensive your regression tests are, you're still always going to have. Yeah, I think it needs to be a decent level of exploratory testing, and you know, not just basic bounds uh, type or boundary type checking. You need to, you need to really have some some solid exploratory testing in there to get those types of issues. Because you, you gave the example of Major League Baseball. I mean, how would somebody have, have known that unless, you know, I don't know, do they have that in their regression test suite now? Or is it just kind of like, well, we're just going to survey the top thousand big popular websites? Well, so it's uh, interesting. As far as I know, they do both now. So basically, they started taking a development model that for every basic bug fix, especially security ones that they put in, there needs to be a unit test for it. So you, you would catch it ostensibly, you know. For, so when they fixed this Major League Baseball bug, they would have put in a unit test that said, you know, and, and again, I don't remember the specifics, but it was, if it was something like, well, we don't load plug-in content from a div that's written by JavaScript or document write on JavaScript or whatever it was, they would actually write a unit test to make sure that once they fix that correctly, so Major League Baseball started working again, they would have that in their regression suite. But then also they do have, for a number of reasons, because they do profile-guided optimization on the compile side too, or at least they used to, I think they still do. They've got a page set, so they run through the, I think it's the top 100 websites, top Alexa, top 100. I don't know if MLB is in that page set, but they do that. But I mean, I think how, how costly that was to set all that up, and that took them years to really be able to do that. Yeah, definitely. I and mean, I think that's kind of, like I said, I mean, that's why I really think it's not, you know, it's not just regression testing. I think you need to have a, a good good amount of exploratory testing to uh, pick up and maybe, you know, discover those types of issues. Well, and it's interesting too, right? It, you look at, and, and we'll link to an article here, there's this weird dichotomy on the customer side because customers want shiny, new whatever, but they've done some surveys and uh, there's this weird kind of elephant in the room about customers like actually don't necessarily want new features. They want to be in control of those features and how they roll out because I mean, how many how many times have we all had that experience where we take that update and it's just frustration, either on our phones or on an app. I mean, that's, you know, that's why I'm still not on iOS 7 just because every time I ask, should I upgrade, I get told no. So there's this interesting dichotomy that we on the business side, we keep hearing people want these new features. They want these new features, but then the, the actual customer surveys that look at things, it's like there's this weird, like they do want new shiny, but they assume, customers assume these features are tested and they work. And that's sort of one of the assumptions that we were sort of talking about that's kind of this weird dichotomy that I don't think we've really resolved uh, as an industry yet. Yusuf, you brought up uh, in the context of, we, we've been talking about very customer-focused updates and upgrades, but you brought it up in the context of kind of, as an industry, how we screw each other uh, in terms of forcing updates down each other's throats because it's cheaper to not have to support you know, a sustaining track and a new feature track. You had a couple of contexts in which we kind of struggle with that. Sure, yeah. I mean, the, the big one that I can think of off the top of my head is OS ten. I mean, every OS ten major OS ten update that comes out, the apples are either ripping you know something out or out of Darwin or out of some core component, or they're they're completely modifying um, an existing one that breaks a whole bunch of custom applications. And then, well, um, actually, to that point, just briefly, what's interesting too is that with each new version of OS ten, they ship a new version of Xcode, and it's my experience has been it's Xcode that screws you because in the context of like we're building stuff on the Mac, it's like they drop SDKs that you need to support, like 10.7 on yeah. 
Um, I actually just had this problem where we needed Xcode 5 because we needed 10.9 support, but they don't ship the 10.7 SDK. Um, and that's kind of like the elephant in the room I was saying before. It's like it really is about limiting customer choice in terms of like you can't, you know, if 10.7 was working fine for you, like good luck trying to find a lot of the applications you want that can run on that. They really, really want you to upgrade. And it, it's, 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 I don't know, it's weird. Yeah, it's a challenge. I mean, I think on a lot of the, the sort of cloud, you know, SaaS, you know, software as a service, or even platform as a service, um, this, this type of issue comes up. So, for example, in a platform as a service where you're deploying uh, some kind of Java application on top of Tomcat or Jetty or whatever, some, some Java application server, and you don't have control over that particular uh, application server layer, and your, your PaaS provider wants to uh, upgrade that due to some sort of security issue, or they no longer want to support Tomcat, you know, five or whatever. Some some version that the developers are no longer supporting or, or bug fixing, and they'll they'll go through and they'll they'll make that upgrade. And then, well, uh, if you've got your your core applications out on the on this on this platform, you know, tough luck. You, you kind of have to deal with it. So yeah, I, I mean, I, I am having worked on a lot of sort of software as a service type companies. I can see where that challenge comes in, where you're having to maintain a lot of older versions of software, but in my experience, generally what happens is that you're, if you as a company or a customer are paying a lot of money for a particular version of you know, on, on that uh, software as a service or, or platform, you, depending on the company, of course, you generally have a lot of weight in saying things like, no, I don't want to upgrade. You guys better maintain this particular version. Otherwise, I'm going to go jump to some, some other competitor. Yeah, well, that's, that's an interesting shift, though, industry shift that basically if you aren't a big customer like that, you don't have a sustaining train anymore. Like, you know, not, you know the example I, I keep bringing up is like iOS. You know, I'm, I'm running, I think, the latest iOS 6 on my iPhone. But if I want security updates for WebKit, like go screw yourself. Like there's no, there's no answer to that. the The answer is upgrade to iOS seven, and and of course the experience that I repeatedly hear is, and and again this is that confluence of like firmware and software. The thing I keep hearing is iOS seven on iPhone four is, and so it's it's kind of this thing we that you don't hear a lot of discussions about. That uh, it's sort of like a way to drive sales almost. And in fact, there, that was actually one of Steve Blank's other bit in that article about Tesla and Adobe about how they, let me see if I can find the quote real quick. Uh, he was talking about Adobe and that creative cloud and the subscription model, and he was saying Wall Street loves it because it's the revenue they can book, and it's sort of predictable and all that kind of stuff, but it basically has opened up the market, and he lists all these applications that basically people have been driven to because they're good enough replacements for Photoshop and Illustrator, GIMP and, and Artboard and iDraw and Sketch, and they're in the article, you can go look at them. But it's kind of interesting if you look in the aggregate, like it would be interesting to know like and I, I don't know that Adobe would ever release this information but if if overall they're making less money because people you know they're they're I don't know I, let me ask you too do you think there is a limit to sort of this this update the thing that people will accept in terms of I have to you know instead of paying a flat $200 for Illustrator I need to pay $100 a year for an application that keeps changing when when I just want to buy the one and use it, but with the one version, learn to use it and use it. Do you think the pendulum will swing back? I think it depends. I think it depends on how good or poor of a job the marketers do on marketing the product. I mean, today, I don't use Illustrator or Photoshop, but my, I guess, my thought is people upgrade because they want to get the new feature or maybe there's performance improvements or that type of thing. So they're able Right, to but say, in this model, you get the upgrade whether or not you want it. Hmm. So do you think people well, would be like, 
I mean, I, I think I, I think as as uh, you know, people start to get more educated about what auto updates mean. They may kind of go back and say, no, we don't want auto updates, or maybe I don't know. Maybe they won't care. Maybe they won't be. Maybe they're going to continue to be kept in the dark. And as long as I have kind of what the latest and newest type feature or whatever, I'm happy. I think all you need is is one giant man-in-the-middle attack or several several of those kinds of things where the thing that's automatically pushing the software that you're blindly accepting is no longer the original vendor. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, it just takes one or two of those and... Well, that's a whole other problem, which... Yeah, I mean, I'm curious really how many people point. just blindly accept it. Yeah. Well, and I know that a lot of the security exploits in the past have actually tried to mimic Windows update dialog boxes or Firefox update or Chrome update or whatever, whatever the UI around it to get people to click yes to installing some whatever. To that point, you kind of bring up the security issue, which we didn't really talk about at all. I think a lot of times iOS or Android, they, they just assume the platform takes care of it for you. But we saw with the crash dumps story earlier in News and Views, it's like you got to think about that up front. You can't just kind of bolt it on after the fact because by then you might have a number of users that are already owned. Actually, we meant to mention this uh, while talking about this, this story this week that Microsoft removed infected Tor hosts without people's knowledge. So that's actually a weird example of a vendor upgrading people. Like, they installed a version of software they wanted to run on their machine, and Microsoft made a decision, no, we think that's infected, we're removing it. Which brings up this whole other question about, well, if they're throwing information about what applications you have, what phones you plug into your machine... What happens if they decide, you know, we really don't want you running Firefox? And, of course, though, if that ever actually happened, there'd be a lot of uh, upheaval. Giant but I, storm. I know, but but still, it's, it's interesting to ponder. Could you imagine seeing maybe degraded, you know, somebody degrading performance or something remotely with some sort of app update? That, and that's actually happened just because people have, you know, libraries have been updated and it, they don't work well. It's interesting to consider. One, one other, like, side view or different opinion on this is if you accept this update and it crashes or gives you this poor performance, like iOS 7 on iPhone 4S or whatever whatever it is, whatever the case be, as the years go by, we're going to get smarter and smarter as engineers about how we deliver these things. And ideally, those types of sucker punches or totally getting like legs swept because you've just blindly accepted someone, those will become rarer and rarer and eventually non-existent. Really? Don't, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering. Like, I don't are we going to evolve? Or? We, no, here's the thing. We're still freaking arguing about Semver and whether you should use it. And it's the cynic yeah. in me when we were talking about this was like, if you don't want to use Semver and don't like using it, it's probably because you don't give a shit about versioning because you're just, everybody's on the latest of my app all the time anyway. Whee! And and so the thing is, it's like, I don't, I, maybe you have more faith in our industry than I do, but I'm with Alan Kay on this where he talks about we're not quite a discipline because of our disdain for history. And, and that continues today with the whole sort of let's ignore all sustaining path of development and just keep shoving new features down users' throats whether or not they want them. Even, you know, and so it's, I, I don't know, I probably sound like a curmudgeon saying it that way, but I, I don't have any faith. I'm with Paul on this one because I think a lot of this is driven by the business. The, the features and, you know, unless your revenue model is not based on features, then what? why wouldn't you want to push out a new update? And then people, the, the whole hardware software thing, you mentioned 
Paul being able to run iOS 7 or the performance of iOS 7 sucks on iPhone 4 or whatever. I mean, that's a whole, I mean, there's, there's a, a synergy between um, the hardware and software sort of from a business standpoint. Oh, I release this new feature, release this new operating system. Oh, you know, if you want to get the better performance, you're going to have to go plunk down whatever, $500 for a new chunk of hardware. And I think that the industry is okay with that. They're happy with that. Yeah. So I the well, industry, let me... I mean, the, the, the suits. The, Let me you know, ask you this, because this is an interesting kind of idea to think about. So you would think that the the major pushback against that would be open source, because their model is like, well, for the most part, it seems like we want we want the best whatever the application is. We want to make that really good and stable. And and look at like core utils and some of these really low. And I I don't know if you would call those applications, but their focus is on like fixing bugs and whatever. But then. What are your guys' thoughts on that? Like, like if you look at like the Linux kernel and System D and all of these different ways that people are like chipping away. Even open source is not necessarily a solution. I mean, I guess the closest one would be a CentOS type thing, where the the whole focus is actually stability and long term support, but not new features. Uh, but then people, of course, get angry about that because they're like, "Well, I can't run, I can't run the latest version of Chrome on CentOS because the versions of things are like so old." It just seems like an almost intractable problem in some sense because there's no, I don't know what what uh, group of people you would go to to be like build long term stable software that that is not feature driven. Really, uh, can you guys think of any? Uh, Jenkins, I mean, they've got long term support for their builds. Well, I'm not talking long term support though. I'm talking like so. I'll, I'll give you a good example. There's a core part of Firefox is something called NSPR, the Netscape Portable Runtime. And it basically does like IO and networking and various things on different platforms. That's why it's like the Apache Portable Runtime. And it's been developed, uh, it came out of Netscape in the mid-90s. And basically, ever since about 2005, I think the main developer has claimed it's done. And they he'll add certain platform support, but he's like, as a project, as a piece of software, it is done. I'm not adding any features. I may add new platforms, but they're, I'm not changing APIs. And so it's a great platform to build applications on because the basic uh, idea is like he says it's done. Are you saying then that Jenkins is quote unquote like done? No, I'm not saying, I mean, I don't know specifically about Jenkins, but I think that depending on the type, here's the thing. So depending on the type of software that you're using, so if it's, if it's like a library or a framework, you're going to, you know, when that framework or library is first started, you're going to get like, People are, you know, contributing a lot of code. They're going to be, you know, bug fixes, etc. And then at some point, I think the not just the feature sets, but the updates are going to kind of flatline because the, I guess, utility of that particular framework or library is kind of met. Um, once you start to pile on more complex software, um, yeah, I think again, like I said, depending on the software, if, you know, certain software is going to um, flatline feature-wise before other types of software. So whether or not Jenkins is going to hit. I guess that uh, particular feature type um, sort of development behavior. I don't know, but I, I think it just depends on the type of software that you're you're developing. So you mentioned the that core component within Firefox browser. Maybe that developer sort of said, okay, you know what? I can't improve this runtime component or whatever any any further. There's nothing more that I can do to make this better other than you know porting this to other platforms and I don't know, maybe they're gonna decide let's rip this out and put something else instead of it. 
Well, it's interesting. This gets into a whole conversation of when is software done, which is not really the topic of discussion tonight, but it, it is interesting. That's a good point to sort of kind of wrap up the discussion because uh, the the point that we brought up that we want to discuss is like in the context of continuous delivery, like how do updates play a role here? Um, and you kind of pose the question, can one have true continuous delivery if they don't have the ability to update software, firmware without user permission, or they're not in control of that. So I actually wrote a blog post about Tim Bray's State of Software 2014, and he was lamenting that on mobile, users control things. And it's like, why would you lament? Like, why don't you want users to have control over their own updates, like if an app is working fine for them? So yeah, I, I, what, do you, what do you think to that question? I think it depends. I think, again, the target audience. So if we're talking about people in the sort of more professional, technical, uh, whatever, DevOps development operations type um, space, definitely give them the control to update. I think as things like cell phones or mobile devices, tablets, etc., become the second nature, and I don't know if we've already hit that um, sort of stage or state as a you know collectively as a people that yeah auto updates probably should occur to kind of keep that user experience kind of improved. So it's kind of like a it's it's more of a user experience type question for my. That said well, that said to the collective groan of all the people in the tech industry that have to play first tier tech support to all their relatives that have accepted the auto update and they're like, hey Yusuf, my phone is a bricked. Or, you know, we, and we didn't even talk about auto-updates that remove functionality because they don't want you doing that anymore, and it's functionality you cared about and used. We, we've sort of only focused on kind of feature, because I've had, I, I, it's funny, EJ, actually, what made me think of that was exactly the tech support argument that you gave, where I, you know, I get the question, like, well, I used to be able to do X, Y, Z, and I can't do it anymore. Why? And you're like, well, because you accepted the update, and then I look like an you know, when I'm trying to give the support where it's like, I don't know what you want from me. Google took this away from you, and you you said okay when, but and they didn't tell you, so it's Google's fault. Not I can't help you. There's nothing I can do. I'm sorry. And I know that's not satisfying, but uh, but that's the answer. I think if we yeah, try to close this up, like you you guys are both both like no auto updates will will not get better. That is not the way of the future. Well, right? yeah, that's that's of... The point that I'm trying to make though, um, Paul and Jay, is that I, I think you know it depends on the, the sort of uh, generation of people that are using this. So people who are I don't know what they call them millennials or whatever whatever the hell they call them um, that are kind of used to this type of stuff. You know maybe they're going to be more accepting of auto updates. That's what I meant by as your device becomes like second nature and like our cars or whatever your toaster uh, microwave whatever that it's going to be kind of, yeah, you know, auto-updates happen and sometimes features disappear and I'll just accept that. So I, I'm, well, when I say generational, I also mean like culturally accepted. I don't think that that's ever going to be, well, I shouldn't say ever, but I don't think in the sort of professional, you know, kind of development operations scheme of things that that is going to be accepted as readily. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think, EJ, to what you, exactly what you said, I, I think... Everybody thinks it's it's one of those things. You we all have seen how the sausage is made, and when you're having the sausage, it tastes delicious until you find something in there you don't want to find. And so it's one of those things. Like to your point, EJ, about like, well, yeah, that's all great until I have a uh, three thousand dollar heating bill because my Nest screwed up or my Tesla uh, exploded because they didn't test things right. And and I don't mean to harp on those brands at all. And I'm sure they probably have some 
good ways of doing testing, and, and it would be great to hear more about how they're tackling those things. But it's one of those things where we're talking about complex systems, and especially in, in software stacks where the firmware is software and has a, that's got its own sets of issues, and then you've got software running on top of that. Like in the Roku example, you've got the firmware and the software, and then a service-based layer stuff. Complexity, I mean, the, the Gmail thing about the random email address, complexity theory surprises a lot of people. And uh, so I think people are okay with it until we all get into this thing where it's like, I hate computers, and I hate computers because it's like always broken. And it's always broken because we always have to, everybody has to update everything, and we all kind of screw each other in that process. So I, I don't know that it's cultural. I, I do agree, I think, you use if that uh, we may get more used to it, but I don't know that we will be more accepting of it when bad things happen, if that makes sense. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, feel, like, I feel like we will get mo- more used to it. And, and you're right, again, this is the millennials, you know, VCR programming or something. It's just going to be accepted. <laughs> but I also think that this is all kind of new, right? This is all pretty new. And in five, ten years from now, I don't think it will be this. Like, I, I think we're going to have a hand on this. You know, it'll be the next big thing. I don't know. Well, that's that's the question. The one thing I wanted to point out, you know, because we were talking about this again, continuous delivery, is that I do think that's that this is a myth of continuous delivery, which is every single commit I need to pass to my users. And and you 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 know read the book and and listen to to Jez talk. He, you hear this a lot. Continuous delivery is not about shipping every single change to users. It's about the business being able to ship changes whenever they want to to users and whenever they have a meaningful set of changes to ship to users. And it's interesting to me that that idea of continuous delivery has gotten perverted into, let's ship every commit, let's ship to a user. And so what I, it, it, this idea has gotten sort of perverted that every commit needs to go out to customers and, and I think part of that is due to the rise in web services where that's like super simple to do and all of the sort of remediation around if it goes bad is actually pretty easy and the users are actually not involved in that loop at all. They just go to your website and get whatever you're offering at the moment. But I think as a lot of other organizations, whether it be enterprise software companies or companies that have software that runs on your phone or runs still Adobe Flash or whatever, you yeah, download and have to use it, they want the business benefits of continuous delivery, uh, which th- totally makes sense because it the the cor- sort of pink elephant in the room that it's it's pointing out is that shipping software traditionally was this full of pageantry and all of this other stuff. And so we sort of corralled around doing that around a particular release. And it's actually saying, no, you should be able to do that with any version, any commit, and be able to do it at any time you want. And that was the real sort of takeaway or big epiphany. But then it got turned into, well, ship every change. And I know that's not, if you talk to people, that's actually not what it means in the way it was originally envisioned. I only heard it once it got so heavily perverted, being like, ship all the things and let let God sort them out. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, no, because that's where I you see people talking about continuous delivery, and it's very alluring, right? But I think people, and again, they optimize in the compiler sense of the word, they optimize out the fact that you have to have some sort of unit test ability and regression test ability to be able to find problems before they get shipped out the door. And you have to have an application architecture that is not going to make it more painful to your customers. And so it, it really actually is not about ship 
<laughs> ship every change in like God's order. I I like that. We're gonna have to use I, that. I, I think when you're talking in terms of like the paths offerings, then yes. But one of the big takeaways from reInvent that we had, uh, AWS's reInvent, the big cloud hoo-ha in Vegas. One of the big things that we, we saw as a takeaway is people create these canary nodes, is what they call it, like the canary in the coal mine kind of thing. And so they'll have a secondary auto-scaling group bring up one instance of this new version of the service. And let's pretend all things are compatible at this point. And you guys can poke a million holes in this, but this is what people are doing. And slowly let some small trickle of traffic hit these things. And if they fall over, then you throw it away and you pretend like it never happened, right? But if it's good, then you scale it up and descale the other auto-scaling group. And people are now on your live thing. So sometimes testing is nigh impossible to do to fake the data, right? To, and you have to just push it live, right, to, to see what happens. Does that make sense? Have you heard yeah. of this, this canary node thing? Oh, yeah, yeah. Now Netflix does it. Um, and Netflix does the whole... So because their matrix of devices like Roku and mobile devices and through their infrastructure from like selecting something to watch and then watching it is like into the hundreds of devices. And so apparently what they do is is they basically at the egress points, they do exactly what you're saying with, with a couple of devices. When they have a new version, they direct these devices to the new canary nodes and then they try to check off the matrix to make sure they get all of them. And then basically on the client side, they detect, you know, they, they, they expect failure. So if it fails, then it falls back. And I, I always thought that was interesting. Again, I don't know what other QA they do, but I can also, there have been instances where I've been like trying to watch Netflix and it's just, I mean, I, I there's something I'm trying to do on Netflix and it just like keeps acting weird. And now I, before I was just pissed off about it. And now I'm like, oh, I must be getting one of the crap canary nodes. Yeah, you're a guinea pig. And here's the thing. That pisses me off. It does. I, I get that. And, and it's not about Netflix. The pattern you're talking about is very common. As a consumer, it's kind of like I don't really like being a guinea pig. Like, can't you, you know? And, and what happens if you're failover or fallback? The code, you know, there's a bug there that gets it wrong. And I, 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 again, I have no clue how Amazon does this, but there were a couple evenings where I was trying to watch something with Amazon streaming video on my PS3, and it hard-locked it up. Like hard locked it, like like could not reboot it, had to unplug it. And when that kind of stuff happens, that shows up as a blip in the metric data. But it's one of those things where it's like I every time I have to use Amazon streaming, I hate it because I'm like, am I gonna? It's gonna hard lock my system up again. Anyway, so so I, I hate to say this, but I, th- I think I think I mean from a testing standpoint, and maybe this is more from a business standpoint. Maybe what some companies do. I'm not saying that Netflix and Amazon do this, but maybe what some companies do is they, they say, okay, let's take a look at our market share and what's the sort of top whatever 100 or top 10 devices, and then focus all your testing effort on that because those are the top 10 devices that people are using our particular whatever, whether it's Netflix or Amazon or any other service on that particular device. Focus testing on that, and then the other stuff will we'll trickle down some testing, you know, as appropriate. Right, but in that case, you get the problem that I was talking about, where if I happen to not be in the top 10 devices, and I don't even know if a PlayStation 3 is in Netflix top 10 devices. Right, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm saying, yeah, but I'm, I'm, I guess what I'm trying to explain is maybe that's why that type of stuff happens. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, you know, while you were saying that, I, I had an interesting idea, and it would, I would be very interested to know if anybody does this. If on your profile for either web services or, I mean, this is really a web service centric part of the discussion, like you could put yourself, like I actually want to be a guinea pig. There are certain people that just want new features they don't care. Like they they always love living on the edge and, and great for them. 
it'd be interesting to see if there's any sort of service out there that's like basically respects that there are people that want stability and don't want the new crap, and there are people that want the new crap and allows them to self-select into those groups and has a little profile widget for that. That would be very interesting because in some sense it would put a little bit of power back in users' hands around sort of these update scenarios so that they can... I can just imagine the, like, I can wait checkbox where you check that off and you're the last person. <laughs> it doesn't matter what device you have. You are the absolute dead last person to get that yeah. feature. I'll and tell you, I, one, of the, one of the other things I saw coming out of, out of reInvent, too, and I don't want to make this into an ad for that debacle, but one of the things that people are also doing is your freemium people, they tend oh, to be the cannon fodder. The yeah. Yeah, they're like, you're going to be our testers because you're not paying yet. And I never quite understood that where, again, Paul, you said if you were going to try out Netflix or Smetflix or whatever the next thing is, and it sucks. And it was and crashy, like, <laughs> you're not going to fork over any money for yeah. that kind of thing. So. Well, it's the dichotomy, you know, of, of, well, we have the data, but, like, spreadsheets of data that show you how many dropped streams there were and kind of stuff, that doesn't actually indicate how pissed or stressed or annoyed I was by using your software. And that's something I think that when people... They don't actually seem to make that connection, which is why they can justify certain decisions around shipping updates to users because it's like, well, only 5% of users got their device bricked. It's like, well, those 5% are going to hate you until the end of time. And that's not a line item in the spreadsheet that you can put down hate, you know. But anyway... Uh, interesting discussion. We'll open it up to the audience. Uh, we'd love to hear this conversation started on Twitter, as some of our, our segments do. Uh, we'd love to hear what you guys and gals think. Uh, how have updates screwed you? How do you do updates? Do you use this canary approach? Do you do something else? Do you have a profile setting saying, I want to be the straggler, please don't update me ever? Uh, and how do you tackle this balance between uh, you know, not overloading users with updates but giving them some modicum of input into that process? and letting them have uh, some amount of control. Uh, let us know uh, at Ship Show Podcast on the Tweet Sphere or crew at theshipshow.com. Maybe we'll revisit this if, if we get a lot of feedback on what people are doing. That. Again, we'd love to know what that is and share that with the rest of the audience. So we'll be back in a moment here on the Ship Show. Welcome back to the Ship Show. So for our last segment tonight, favorite tool tip as we often do. We actually have a bunch of tool tips, so you're probably going to get a lot of these in the next few episodes because we love sharing interesting tools that uh, we've randomly found. And Yusuf, you have found for us an interesting tool, and I'm not exactly sure why it's interesting, but I have a sense that you're going to tell us. So, JQ. Yeah, JQ. So, straight off the website, it's a... Not it's JK. A yeah, JQ. Yeah, I'm uh, it, It's a, uh, a lightweight, flexible command line JSON processor. So, I guess the, you can think of it as sad awk and grep uh, for JSON data. So, uh, I discovered it. Actually, somebody had tweeted about it on, uh, on Twitter, and I decided to kind of download it and check it out. And it it's actually pretty gnarly tools, especially if you're doing anything or consuming uh, web services or APIs that uh, generate like JSON documents and specifically like very large 
um, sort of JSON documents, it's nice to have like a command line tool that can use to parse out JSON elements or objects real quick. And there's some other advanced fancy features you can do like MapReduce. You can take this JSON and convert it to, to different types of document formats. And so it's got a lot of handy command line type features. So yeah, check it out. It's uh, written in portable C and zero runtime dependencies. I'm actually installing it as we speak right now to play with yeah, it. That's- but that's kind of nice, so you can like get it. You can use Rundeck or Ansible or whatever to blast it to all your machines and yep. know that it'll work because it doesn't rely on some JSON library. Yep. It also sounds like this would be good for like if you're sifting through data bags or constructing data bags in Chefland, aren't those? Because that's all JSON, right? Yep. So or, uh, taking a look at like OI output. Yeah. Oh, that, I didn't even think of that. That's yeah. Uh, yeah that's a lot of data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you find yourself sifting through JSON and hating your life, try JQ, not JK, JQ, and stop hating your life. As we always do at the end, uh, we're going to mention the conference block. We'll add uh, the current conferences uh, that are going around to the show notes. I know uh, Chef Conf CFPs have closed. Um, there's actually, I found a website, and we're going to link to that too, devopsconferences.com, which apparently whoever runs at DevOps, and I don't know who that is, and I probably, I actually probably maybe do, but I don't know on Twitter, they run devopsconferences.com. We'll put a link to that, and it's got a massive list of all the ones coming up. We tend to talk a lot about US-centric conferences, which is my bad, but this is a great list. I think last time I looked at it, there were about 30 conferences, uh, a lot in Europe and Australia and Asia-Pac too, so we'll link to that because they've got the 411 on those. So, from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. From Polar Vortex, this is EJ Sermillo signing off. (laughs) And we will see you all in a couple of weeks.